We'll be turning in our Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews again, chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, let me begin reading in verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Join me in praying. Lord God, as we pray before you this morning, we pray for understanding. Help us truly to set aside the old, the first covenant, and to embrace the new covenant, along with your people Israel. And let us see hope for Israel and hope for ourselves in this newness that you've brought by way of promise. Bless our study this morning. Bless these words. Teach whom you will your way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This section of Hebrews began with the main point. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying, says the writer, we have such a high priest. And in this having of such a high priest, this mediator, verse 6, of a better covenant that is established on better promises, we are going to be looking at the faults of the first covenant. The faults of the first covenant as they are outlined for us here. Reminding ourselves that God is bringing the people, his people, the Hebrews, into a full understanding of his flow of time and history and the making of this covenant, which is a transition from the Mosaic covenant, also known as the first covenant here in our text. The faulty nature of the first covenant is our study. How are we supposed to think about that is also part of our study. We can go too far either direction when we study the faulty nature of the covenant that came before the new covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And we can go so far in saying that it was useless, it was worthless, and we can denigrate it as being in somehow and in some way a negative article. We are not to go that far in our minds, nor are we to go in the other direction and seeing just the goodness of it is such that we would desire to re-adopt the principles and the commandments of the old covenant into our lives, our worship, and our way of following Jesus in our age. Neither of those two are acceptable, and hopefully we can keep a good balance as we study. We have been presented with a new mediator, a new high priest, who will mediate a better covenant, better than that which came before. And now we're going to look at the faulty nature of the first covenant, the faults that it had. We'll look this morning at the research of the faulty covenant, of the requirements of this faulty covenant, and the results of the faulty first covenant. So let's begin this morning by looking at the research of a faulty covenant, the research. So we are looking into this like a researcher, and that is exactly the way in which the writer of Hebrews is presenting this to us. That there is a way in which we need to now observe the covenant that came before, under which Israel lived for hundreds of years, and we are supposed to see that there was fault in that covenant. So our research is, is the element of discovery, if you will. We need to discover why that was. And under further examination, 
uh, compile our results, look at the results of this examination that are presented to us here in the book of Hebrews. So we look at the first covenant, that it was faulty, and this is clearly displayed to us by the very words of verse 7. Look at chapter 8, verse 7. Now, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. So without denial, that is what he's telling us. There was fault with the first covenant. Because if it had been faultless, it could have stayed in place and been operable and sufficient to bring about the completion of God's plan and purpose for Israel and the world. But not being without fault, it then has faults. I was interested to note in the news over this week that perhaps the largest measured iceberg was created. And in Antarctica, the fault lines that had been growing around a giant piece of that ice that surrounds that area did what they call the process of calving, or in the mother iceberg, which I would say would be the cow, would then calve a little iceberg and then set it free, a breaking loose. And it is said to have been some 600 square miles in area, this iceberg that broke off with the fault lines that, would, that had been being measured by, by some years, and the lengths and depths of them were quite amazing. If we're going to compare it to a city, the size of this iceberg is two times the size of the city of New York. And it is the largest one ever measured insofar as they know. So the fissures and the fault lines were part of the natural process of ice flows. That over time, it is natural and right for these fissures to become large enough that the pressure and the weight of the ice breaks it free from the major flow of ice and sets it off on its own. A fault line. I decided to use this as a illustration for what we are looking at here today. We're going to look at the first fault line and another fault line, and then the faults that run throughout as a result of what we discover here in the first place. The first covenant was faulty, and now I want us to look at the first fault line. The first fault line in this old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is that it was incomplete. It was an incomplete covenant that even by God's own design, there was not a long-term design, but its natural life was to come to an end and break off. I take you again to chapter 7, verse 18 of Hebrews, where we read again, For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness, and its unprofitableness. Why was it weak and why was it unprofitable? Verse 19, for the law made nothing complete, nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The incomplete nature of that first covenant was that people could not draw near to God completely. The separation was still there. And it did not take care of their great problem of sin and the wrath of God completely. And so the natural process of this law that God put in place is that fissures, breaks would happen that would break this part of God's system off from the main system. That I'm then going to say the main ice is the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic Covenant had been attached to the Abrahamic Covenant, and through the natural process of God's time, 
the fractures and fissures of pressure broke that old covenant off now to float free, become part of the waters of the oceans, and hopefully not hit somebody's boat. But that is the process. God's process, both with icebergs and with his law. The problem also with the fault lines that run through the old covenant is that they were primarily external. External, meaning things that you did on the outside in the physical realm, in the tangible realm. Certainly there was a need for the right heart, but it could be easily missed in all of the different ministrations and washings and sacrifices and the civil law and the legal laws and all of those things that went with it. And its weakness is really pointed out to us, its incomplete nature is pointed out to us very clearly in Galatians where a group of Christians were attempting to go back and follow the old Mosaic law as part of their Christianity and even depending on it as though it was still attached to what God has planned for the future of Israel and those who are believers. So in this admonishment, this book of Galatians, which indeed is an admonishment, the weaknesses and the incomplete nature of the first covenant are displayed. If you look at Galatians chapter 3, in verse 2 you can hear the scathing words of the Apostle Paul because they have been readopting the law into their lives and trying to follow it. Paul asks this question. He says, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit, capital S, meaning the Spirit of God, by the works of the law? He said, Did you, by doing the works of the law, did the Holy Spirit come and indwell you? Were you made new and given the new birth because you kept the law? Or, he says, on the other hand, by the hearing of faith. The hearing of faith. When you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you believed you did not give the works of the law as a precursor to your belief. You believed. So what he's going to say next is you are foolish if you readopt the old law that is designed to pass away. Verse 3, notice. You, are you so foolish he asks, having begun in the Spirit, that you now are being made perfect by the flesh. So the weakness of and the fault line of the Old Covenant was that it was primarily something you did externally without necess the necessity of an internal right heart. And he's pointing that out. Were you made perfect by the things you did in the flesh? Verse 4, he goes on to say, Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So the fault lines are the flesh, the weakness, the pressure. If anyone knows anything about following the law or following rules and regulations, that the weight of trying to carry them perfectly and administer them by your own strength, that of your body, of your flesh, and even of your mind that is part of your body, the weight of that starts causing little fractures along the fault lines of your weak flesh. You're not able to take the burden of carrying God's holy laws upon yourself and keep them perfectly because you are imperfect in your flesh and under pressure you break and it breaks off in verse 5 of galatians 3 we read therefore he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you does he do it by works of the law obviously the answer is to be concluded no he did not or by the hearing of faith it was certainly by the hearing of faith that they were both saved and are being spiritually sanctified. Verse 6, he now parallels this to Abraham, and this reminds us that the Abrahamic covenant is the precursor to the Mosaic old or first covenant, as in our text right now, and the it was added to the Abrahamic covenant and would need to be broken off again when its purposes were fulfilled. Notice how he lays this out. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. 
And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify, listen, the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham. So the good news came to Abraham, and the good news was that Abraham would be a deliverer not only of his own people through this promise God gave him, but all the nations would be blessed. Listen, same beforehand, in you all the nations shall be blessed. This is the beginning form of the gospel of Christ, that God was raising up a people through one man, Abraham, to become his chosen people of which Messiah would come, and the good news was therefore preached that he would not only reach Israel, but all the nations of the world would be blessed through the nation Israel. And so it goes. Verse 9. Then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So it's all of faith and not of external works that the spirit life exists. So the first covenant was faulty. Its first fault line was that it was incomplete. And its second fault line, fault line number two, is that it was temporary. It was designed to break off under pressure. It was designed to come to an end of its natural process and work once that work was fulfilled. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 18, we read this, for if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise, by promise. So the law was, in a sense, mediating the, and administrating the covenant made to Abraham by God. Now look at verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? Now, this is a question that so many people have, but so many, even full denominations, seem to miss. So let's not miss it. Let's get it. What purpose then does the law serve? Listen, it was what? Added. Added. Added where? How? To what? It was added to the Abrahamic promise and we will see temporarily, it was added because of transgressions, because of the weakness of God's people, the sinfulness of God's people, because of transgressions, listen, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. To Abraham, a promised son was made from whom God would make a nation, and then from that seed of his first son, Isaac, would come the joyous promise to the entire world, and in the first place, to all of Israel. One who is then going to mediate the law of God. Listen how this works. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels, listen, by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. God is the one, but for the rest, there is a mediator to mediate this promise, this covenant, this administration. Now, verse 21, another question is asked. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. So the law is to be seen as good. It was added because of the sinfulness, the transgressions of the people. And then is it against the law of God? Certainly not. For if it had been the law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. It was given for transgressions. It in of itself was not the promise and is not encapsulating the delivery of God's people in that promise, it could not give life. It was faulty in that regard. Verse 22, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, listen, may be given to those who believe. The faith, the belief that is being centered upon rather than the keeping of external laws. Verse 23, but before faith came, 
So before the fullness of time came, we were kept under guard by the law. So why was there a law of Moses? Well, it was to keep people in line. It was to keep people under guard because of their immaturity, that the development of them as a people was not yet full, and the law needed to teach them to prepare them for the coming mediator, the coming seed, in whom they were to have faith, namely Jesus Christ, which by and large, in their immaturity, Israel rejected. But many Gentiles believed. So they were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed, now listen, here's some concluding things. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, there is no, we are no longer under a tutor. It was temporary. So to bring back your first grade teacher and sit in class again once you are now matured and an adult and know better you do not need to learn how to draw an A, a B, and a C. You do not need again to learn your A, B, Cs, and one, two, threes. This is why the admonishment came to us in this book of chapter 5 of Hebrews, that by now you should be teachers, but you have need again to be taught the first things, the elementary things. So don't go back to the elementary. You need to grow up into the fullness of knowledge. There's a new covenant. There's a better covenant with a mediator and a new high priest to mediate that in your maturity. Let go. Let go and let the law fall into the sea. It has fulfilled its purpose. Also, we learned that second, letter B in your notes, the second covenant was sought. A second covenant was sought. Since there was faultiness in the first covenant, for if the first covenant had been faultless, the conclusion is then no place would have been sought for a second, if the law could be completely your deliverer, you would not need, you would not need to seek after a second. A very interesting Greek word is used here, zeteo, but it is a word that has a startling array of, of directions, not of definitions, but of directions. It is specifically to seek. That, that's its simplest understanding, to find something out by seeking. But beneath that and indwelled in it is this idea of desire, of the highest desires. Jonathan Edwards would call it your affections. Where your affections lie, you will then follow with your actions. So if your highest affection is to be holy and follow God, you will do that. But if your highest desire is to sin, you will do that. And that is that exactly the scope of this word we have for as a very negative connotation in what is sought, and then a very positive connotation even unto worship in what is sought. So you can seek after either wickedness and evil, or you can seek after the worship of God, and that is the other side of it, and goodness. Let me display just a few uses of the pursuit and the seeking after wickedness or evil. And the first of these we have in the evil that came after Jesus Christ to destroy him before the cross. And in Mark chapter 11, we see this word in verse 18. And the scribes and chief priests heard it, now listen, and sought how they might destroy him. So see, it's more than just casually seeking something. This is putting the full force of their desire and their intentions toward the purpose of destroying Jesus Christ. They racked their brains how they could set him up. They planned with an evil purpose, machinations that would trip him in the forum of the people and remove the power he was carrying with the people. 
For they feared him, the word says, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. So they attacked him and they attacked him and they tried to destroy him. Also, this is in the realm, and a number of times we find in Scripture that this seeking after is used even of demons. And here is one example in Luke eleven twenty four, 24. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, listen, seeking rest. There must be something about them being unembodied that gives them angst that gives them a desperation so that their desire is to find a place where they can rest again. And they put their whole efforts in doing that. Note for, uh, uh, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came, which gives them an idea of rest. So the seeking after these things that are evil with evil intention is one side of this word, but now, on the other hand, it is of the worship and the goodness that is the highest desire. Notice Matthew 13. In the parable passages here about the kingdom that will come, the kingdom of heaven that is described again and again throughout Matthew 13, we read verse 45. Again, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant, listen, seeking beautiful pearls. So his utmost desire, his, his highest intentions are to seek the best pearl ever and the most beautiful ones that can be found. And then verse 46 says, who when he found one pearl of great price, went out and sold all that he had to buy it. And so the example is, knowing that the kingdom of heaven should be sought after, you should seek that with your highest desire, the fullness of your heart. In John chapter 1, we see the word used again in verse 38. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? So these first two disciples tagging along and too shy to go up, even after John the Baptist had pointed him out as being the savior of the world, they start following him. And, they, and he said, what do you seek? What is your heart's desire? What are, what are you after? Are you after worship? Are you after me? And that's really what he's getting at. And they still in their infancy say, where are you staying? But to our ears, that's like, okay, can we come, you know, and go wherever it is you're going? But more so, can we be with you where you live? Where is it you are? There we want to be. And he said to them, notice this invitation, come and see. The best thing you can do is pursue the kingdom. The best thing you can do is pursue, he will bring the kingdom, Jesus the Christ, the rabbi. And it is Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount said these words which you know, but has our word seek in it. When we read, but seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. The highest seeking heart seeks the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So seeking then the fulfillment of all time to implement these things. And so here we are learning that the first covenant was faulty. It could not bring in kingdom. It did not have that ability. It could not bring in Messiah. It could not bring total faith. That was not its purpose. It was incomplete. So there was a need to seek in the realm of worship the highest fulfillment of all things, that perfect, new, and complete covenant that was to come. So in researching the fault lines of the old one, we see it was not able, because of the faultiness of it, to bring in that which the Abrahamic covenant had promised. It was attached for a period of time, necessarily broken off, so that that which was complete could be sought after. Why would you seek ye the law of Moses to follow? O foolish Galatians, it is done. 
It is over, followed by faith, Jesus Christ. The requirements now. First, the research into the faulty covenants. Now the requirements of the faulty covenant that make it indeed faulty. So what was it about this that made it faulty? I want to explain to you this. Verse 8, because finding fault with, keyword, not the covenant, finding fault with, pronoun, plural, them. Fault was found with them. The covenant wasn't the problem, though the covenant was not designed to bring completeness. The fault was found with them. So what was it about the old covenant that brought about the fault in the people under which God placed the covenant? Israel and all who would then later follow as proselytes. The problem with it is that it was a two-party covenant. A two-party covenant. You have made two-party covenants if you have bought a car with a loan, bought a house with a loan, and have been married. Marriage is, in the very least, a two-party covenant. Now, you might say man and wife, but I would say man and wife are making a covenant with God, a two-party covenant. With the bank, you'd say to the bank, I want this house for my very own. They say, well, you can, you can get a loan from us and live in that house, but here are the requirements. First, we need X amount of money from you as a down payment, and then you have to make regular payments. And if you fail to make your payments, you find out who really owns the house. Isn't that true? If before the entire balance is paid off, you stop making payments because you've made a covenant agreement between two parties, then the party who has the money, honey, takes your house because you have defaulted on your agreement, you have broken your promissory covenant. The problem with the Mosaic covenant is that it was made between God, the Lord, party one, the Lord, and party two, the vassals. The vassals, i.e. Israel and all who would follow under Israel. So this goes back to even the legal system of the days of lords and serfs. And we understand it perhaps from our Western culture that the lord of the manor, the lord of the castle, makes an agreement with his vassals, his serfs, his servants. And what he does is promises them protection and provision. I've built a castle. When you need protection, I will go out and fight for you. And I will give you protection. You can run to the castle. And I will provide you Provision in that you can work my land, but when you work my land, you give to me this amount of return. And also, you have to give me your loyalty and your obedience. So the Lord promises protection and provision, and the people promise loyalty, obedience, and to do the work. This is exactly how the Mosaic Covenant was set up. It was set up between God having obligations and Israel having obligations that if Israel broke them, it would break covenant with God. And notice right before they went into the land of promise, and by the way, the land of promise is attached to not Mosaic Covenant in the first place, but to Abrahamic Covenant, and Mosaic was added on. In Deuteronomy 11, we read of this. Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. So if you keep the house by making payments, blessing. If you don't make payments, curse, you're homeless. And it's just about like that. The blessing, verse 27 of Deuteronomy 11, the blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. 
This is also what we call a conditional covenant. Two-party covenant, both of them have obligation, and the conditions of blessings received from the Lord are conditioned upon obedience, i.e. paying your loan. Okay? So, blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you today, and on the other side, and the curse... If you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God to turn aside from the way which I commanded you today to go after other gods which you have not known. So they owe him loyalty and obedience, and in this case, worship. They are to worship God and not worship false gods. But the pressure of the law was upon them all the time to be blessed or cursed. They lived under the terror of breaking the law of God and the consequences that would come to them. I want to give you an example of this illustrated quite starkly. And I'm going to add to your, your notes just a little bit Deuteronomy 27 as well as Deuteronomy 28. I will not read them all but I am going to read parts of them. On entering the land, a very interesting situation was to take place by the commandment of the Lord. And there was to be two parts of the people to sing blessings or cursings as the people entered the land of promise, one on one mountain and the other on the other. And so... Here's what was being set up. If you read Deuteronomy 27, verse 9, Then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed, listen, O Israel, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. Now look at this picture. And Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you have crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel. So this is to be like a song, like a chant. All these rafts of people singing this on these two mountains through which the people of Israel would be entering into the land of promise. And notice the burden that is laid on them. Notice the weight of this covenant put upon them. And I'm just going to read a little, and you're going to be undone by it. This is what you had to do and not do. First, the don't do's, the cursings. And they will speak to the children of Israel with a loud voice. And this is a re like the first responsive reading and singing. Here it is. Cursed is the one who makes any carved or molded image or abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall then sing, Amen. Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt, and all the people shall say, Amen, truly, verily, we vow. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice, do the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people will say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed, and all the people shall say, Amen. And on it goes, and on it goes. To 26, cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed, 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 cursed. Do not default on your promise. 
Chapter 28, now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord, your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I've commanded you today, that the Lord, your God, will set you high above all the nations of the earth. He will bless you. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Listen, because you obey the voice of the Lord, your God. It's conditioned upon absolute obedience. And then the blessings come. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. And as a past rancher, I just got to say, that's grand. <laughs> a wonderful blessing. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed, blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies, uh, will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessings on which, uh, blessings on you and your storehouses, and in all which you set your hand, He will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Blessings and blessings and blessings, a promise of protection and provision from the Lord if you give Him proper loyalty and obedience. Why was there a fault with the law because there was a fault inside the people to whom it was given. Did you remember Deuteronomy 27 and 26? Cursed is the one who does not confirm how many of the words of this law? All. The law was never to be divided up. It was never to be segregated into pieces you keep now and pieces you can voluntarily not keep according to your divisions, but the entire law as given, incomplete, in toto, when you read it, you will know you can't keep it. If you were an Israelite, you would have failed. I don't care how fastidious you are, you would break it. You would be like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus Christ and said, Lord, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to follow you? And he says, keep the law. Keep the commandments. And he says to him, This I have done from my youth. And if Jesus was going to really confront him, he would have just said these words from the playground, liar, liar, pants on fire. Nose as long as a telephone wire. Like Pinocchio, you are lying. He revealed he was a liar because he said he'd kept the entire law from his youth. He was lying. And so Jesus exposed the law in his life that was not kept by saying, go sell all that you have. What else must I do, he says? I've already been perfect. Well, Jesus says, since you're so perfect, go sell all you have and then come follow me. And the rich young ruler went away sad because he was rich. He exposed his heart. He was given a law he could not keep for sure. Because he wasn't keeping any of the others either in perfection. The problem was with the second party. And the second party, the vassals, the serfs, the Israelites had faults. They had faults. Fault was found in them, and the faults were the sin nature. They were of Adam. They were of the fallen race. Jeremiah, when he speaks to this people, when he gives the prophecies of God at the end of the horrid nature of Judah's life, before they go into captivity because of their sin, he declares the nature of the sin that is in all men. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Hear me, who can know it? So sin nature that dwells in every single man born of woman since Adam has been filled with the sin nature that cannot even weigh 
their own heart to know how bad they are. They can't know it, neither can we. On the other hand, Jeremiah declares, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God can tell. That's how Christ was prompted to ask the rich ruler to sell all. The sin nature and the law of Moses were designed for each other. What do I mean by that? The law was designed to expose the sin nature in Israel. The fault lines of their lives would be pressured outward until they would break. Paul describes this in Romans. Listen, I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. So the law actually brings death. It brings the stench of the judgment of God because sin rises up. It was Bunyan in his Pilgrim's Progress that used this example, and I just happened to come upon it in reading a sermon uh, related similarly, not to Hebrews, but elsewhere about the law uh, by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he used it, and I thought, if it's good enough for Spurgeon, it'll be good enough for me. And the picture in Pilgrim's Progress is, is Pilgrim in this, in this room, and, and a room with dust. You know, and, there, and, there's, and I, might, I just have to share, there's one thing I really don't like to do. Well, there's a lot, but this is on the list. Dusting. Dusting is not the funnest job in the world. And dust is an amazing thing. It, it, when it's sitting there, it doesn't, it's unobtrusive. Unless the light shines on it, of course. But if you live it in dark and keep the windows drawn, then the dust just sits there and you, you can go months and months and years and years without noticing how much dust has gotten into the room, has gotten into the house. But as soon as you start dusting, it starts rising up. It starts floating down on things. You're like, my goodness, what in the world is this? It's everywhere. And in Pilgrim's Proverbs, Pilgrim's dusting, and it's rising up around him. The dust is all around, and he can't breathe. He can't see. He can't live. He's, ah, I'm going to die. Sin's like dust. And the sin nature is like dust until the duster comes to stir it up. And the duster is the law. The duster actually can't get rid of the dust. It just stirs it up to choke you. And it kills you. As Romans 7 goes on in verse 10, And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, listen, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me. And by it killed me. What was the deception? The deception is, I can keep the law. I've done all this from my youth. I, well, how do you know you're going to heaven? Because I've been good. How many people are saying to God, even now, I've been good enough. I've done the things that God would want me to do. He's going to let me into his heaven. I will be in the kingdom. I'll be among the blessed. I won't be among the cursed. When they haven't believed in faith, they're keeping their own law. They're not even keeping God's law. They're keeping their own law. And any people who call themselves Christians of the new covenant and go back to attach to themselves this law of death are only thrusting knives into their own bodies so that they will live an everlasting death. Even if you are saved, you will kill your Christianity by trying to use something that is broke off and reattach it to the life of faith and the Spirit. So in verse 12, we find that the problem was with the people, not with the law. And in Romans 7, 12, God says through Paul, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy, just 
and good. The law displays to us the absolute holy requirements of a God who is holy. And if you want to approach him and be near him and be blessed by him, absolute holiness is the requirement. And the law was there to show them they weren't. They were disqualified. They were transgressors. They were black. And they were covered in sin and needed a savior. Paul has, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, he declares. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that th sin through the commandment might become, listen, exceedingly sinful. Exceedingly sinful, because sometimes there's stuff in your life that you don't have a problem with. You're doing it, you're saying it, you're participating in it, and you have this innocence. Well, I don't feel guilty. I don't feel like I've done anything wrong until you read God's law. As Paul says, I didn't have a problem with covetousness until the law said, don't covet. I didn't have any problem with ice cream till I went on a diet. You don't have any problem with lust until Jesus said, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. By the way, women, you can do the same thing. Don't you forget it. And by hearing that, you know I'm dead. You thought you'd just get away with it on the outside with the law of Moses. Jesus takes it to the spiritual side and says, it was even in your heart, you're condemned. Condemned by the law. The light of the word of God exposes sin, and that's its purpose, the law's purpose. To make us see it as bad as it is. That we will fail. That we'll try to get away from it. Some of you know how light works. And that there are dissidents of the dark places. That are not fun to dwell with, shall we say. For any lengthy period of time. I have just such a place under my house. It's called the proverbial crawl space. Which by definition means you can't walk upright there. You're crawling, baby. So you're on your belly. It's been dark down there. And there's other living beings there with you. Now, it's fine if you just go without any light and just crawl around, bang around. There's no problem. But you put that nice headlamp on to do the work that you're under there to do, and you discover things. Sometimes they're carcasses of things over which you've just crawled. Sometimes there's these beautiful little webbed things with creatures in them that stick to your hair. My favorite. Other creepy crawlies that you're fine being under the house. They've been there for years. But until you're there with the light shined on them, then you want out of there. And that's what the law is designed to do. You want to say, I want out of here. Who will save me, Paul says, from this body of death? Who will save me? The fault was with them, with Israel, with the sin nature. Because the carnal mind is at enmity with God, and for it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. And the law is a light that shines on all men and shows them they're in trouble. But there's hope within our Bibles when we turn back and we get close to finishing this up. I said close, don't close the Bibles yet. In verse 8, we see hope even in the midst of of fault. It is deliverance from God and it is the precursor to a single party covenant 
that God makes himself. Notice again Hebrews 8 verse 8. Finding fault with them, he says, Behold, this is a wonder. This is a glory. This is God condescending to help. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is the faultless favor of God that found them. They could not find God. They could not draw near to God through the law. So the faultless favor of God finds them. Behold. By way of an oath, he says, I will make a new covenant. And lest we forget, it was just a few verses ago that a high priest who would be the mediator of this covenant was established by the merciful, faultless favor of God in 721. For they have become priests without an oath, but he, Jesus, by an oath, by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So a priest for a new law, a new high priest, a law for the new high priest to mediate that was better. The results of the faulty covenant are in verse 9. What happened to these people? It was this. This new covenant he announces will be not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Listen, because they did not continue in my covenant. I disregarded them, says the Lord. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, says Paul in Galatians 3.10. Deuteronomy 28.58, if you do carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring upon your descendants extraordinary plagues, etc., they did not continue. The fault of the fathers is they discontinued obedience. They stopped payment on the loan. They defaulted. And so God disregarded them. Amos says it this way. The word of God through Amos, God saying, I hate, I despise your feast days. So when you're attempting to keep the law, though you're breaking the law by unbelief, I despise your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. There's no peace with God. There's no nearness with God. God is pushing them away. For I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. In this book we will read, Sacrifice you did not desire, but a body was given me. So says the great high priest. Israel did not endure in their promises. They could not keep their end. The call of Hebrews will be for us to endure following the promise of the new covenant. Trusting in it. Like Abraham. Hebrews 10 will say, For you have need of endurance. So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. The law could not deliver this. Only God can by faith. Let's pray.
Bless us, Lord, for we have sinned. You've told us if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We believe that by faith. The righteous offering of your Son, Jesus Christ, paid the debt, paid for the sin of our past, paid for the sin of our present, and paid for the sin that we will commit by grace. We trust in thy deliverance and your promise. Help us, Lord, to walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.